HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a hospitality platform that empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Opening soon, listeners save 40% on the setup fee at getbento.com slash opening soon. That is G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O dot com forward slash opening soon. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Jenny Goodman. And I'm Alex McCurry. And if you're just tuning into our show, we are a show all about the business of opening restaurants. And we talk to chefs and restaurateurs and even vendors who might help take your idea to opening soon. Yes. Uh, today we're talking about neighborhood restaurants. Uh, there's a lot of ways to define the type of restaurant you'll open. And one of the more inviting ideas is that of a neighborhood restaurant. Uh, because a neighborhood restaurant helps foster community, it can transcend trendiness, it carries with it the potential to be around for a very long time, which everybody wants, right? Um, obviously, all of that takes understanding the location of your business and the patrons that will populate it, a feat that Happy Cooking Hospitality has achieved very successfully. At the helm and in our studio today is founder Gabriel Stuhlman. Uh, Gabe's desire for the industry was sparked during his college years in Wisconsin and continued with his journey to New York City. He made sure not to leave the Midwestern hospitality idea behind uh, when Gabriel, along with his wife, Gina, and their partners opened Joseph Leonard as their first venture in 2009. Since then, they have added, subtracted, pivoted a couple, and now um, 
host guest at Jeffrey's Grocery, Fedora, Bar Sardine, and Fairfax, along with three properties at the Freehand Hotel, uh, including Simon and the Whale, and then most recently opening the Jones in NoHo. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you Happy for Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Gabe is a busy guy. He's opened... That's a long list. Yeah, 12 restaurants. We just talked about 12 restaurants in 10 years. Yeah, when we count failures. When we count failures. When we count failures. We, it's failures count. Five, eight. The, it was definitely an opening. <laughs> it was definitely an <laughs> It was an definitely opening. an opening. Well, it was definitely a lot of That's hours. still a damn good success <laughs> ratio if you, like, you know, you're still, you're still batting pretty high. Yeah, we're so. nine for 12. Nine for 12 is pretty damn good, if you ask me. That's in 10 years. And Thank you. And he had, I never really looked at it that way. I mean, way. hello. Count it's your a winning successes. record. That's a damn <laughs> winning record if I've ever seen one. Um, but so your, your places are known and beloved as neighborhood establishments. So tell us a little bit about your philosophy as a restaurateur and, and why you honed in on, on the neighborhood. Um, so I think, uh, well, I guess the answer is why I like neighborhood restaurants. It starts with what are the kind of places that I want to hang out in and what are the kind of places that draw me? And then there's probably another layer of just, you know, technical skill being lesser on my end. Um, I, which, think you, I think no, we've no, just counted that. No, 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 no I, mean, I mean that in terms of fine dining. Right, right? Okay, like, I hear you. Like you look at the really fine dining restaurants of New York, whether we're talking about, you know, Le Bernardin or Brooklyn Fair or Massa or, you know, since we're here, Blanca. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't have the, I, I don't have a background um, in the dining room or in the kitchen of working in places like that. So that's part, but I would imagine the reason that I don't have a background of working in places with that level of finesse is because those aren't the places I seek out when I'm not working. And I think the places that I always worked at when I started working in the industry and the places when I'm traveling, uh, whether you know I'm going to Seattle or Chicago or Paris or London, you know, it, every time I'm taking a trip anywhere, I'm the kind of person that does my research of where do I want to eat when I get there. Same, yep. Mm-hmm. And the places that I always look up are neighborhood restaurants. I I don't think. Um, ooh, what's the three Michelin-starred Relay and Chateau restaurant in San Francisco? Right. What is that version in Seattle? I think I want to go to Renee Erickson's spots. Right. I want to go to John and Vinny's joints. I want to go, like, I, I want to go to Clamato when right. I'm in Paris. Uh, I want to go to Noble Rot when I'm in London. Right. You know, and so the kind of places that have always, you know, been my fire like if I'm a moth to a flame, are places that have a casual nature to them, places that are about more than the technique, and they're more about this feeling and this energy and this warmth and this thing that I've, I've tried to define as heart and soul. Mm-hmm. And places that are booming with heart and soul, you feel it. I think it makes everything taste better. I think it makes everything look better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been drawn to where am I having the most fun and creating the most memories? And can we build places that do that? 
So when you're looking at new spaces and you're like, how do, you know, is, is it really like it's a gut check feeling? Like, how do you know it's going to have that heart and soul for you? And is it that's always a smaller space? So I think, I think heart and soul is agnostic to geographic location. I think heart and soul is created by the people that inhabit it. Mm-hmm. I think about it in, you know, an, an analogy to you go to a friend's home for a dinner party. If your friend invites you over for dinner, it doesn't fucking matter where they live. I'm sorry. I don't know if we're allowed to curse. Well, You're allowed if, to curse. Depends um, if they live like a, down in Bay Ridge or something, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, then you have deeper issues. you just never see that. You have deeper issues about, <laughs> uh, about, you know, how much you weigh the journey right. to <laughs> see your friend. Um, far. The but, journey is different than the but place. But to me, like, whether it's going to your aunt and uncle's place or your grandma's place, like... You may not want to be in the suburbs of Baltimore, right? Right. right? But when I walk in, like, there's definitely warmth, right? Right. And whether I'm going to my friend's fifth floor walk up in the Lower East Side or shitty ass apartment in you know the basement of some building in you know Harlem, like it, it doesn't matter where I'm at. It matters how much effort did they put in, and it doesn't matter do they have crystal or china or fancy. It's you could make the most fun dinner party in any room if you fill it with the right people and the right energy. Like all it takes is candles, music, food cooked with love, right. and kindness. And I think that. I mean, case and point. We are at Heritage inside of Roberta's in, a shipping in Bushwick container. in a shipping container. Yeah. Like, and we feel the packed. love here, people. We yeah. feel the love. And, but it, it is, but, and people have been feeling the love too. here for Ten years. a decade, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about the location was not prime. No, nobody knew Bushwick in 10 yeah, years ago. The, no, it wasn't about the location. They didn't spend a shitload of money on their design. Nope. They didn't spend a whole bunch of money on their forks and plates. And But, like, they filled the place with soul. For sure. I mean, people revolted when they redid the bathrooms recently. <laughs> so. <laughs> but that's. How did, you, how did you choose the West Village as your base? The West Village chose me. Um, <laughs> and by that, I mean. Uh, in most of the instances when I'm looking for a place, uh, my, my attitude is cast as wide of a net as possible, right? Like, because I'm a bad fisherman, right? Yeah. You know, um, is, is like just <laughs> cast as huge of a net as you can, see as much as is out there, and then find out what appeals to you. And the way, you know, I, I, I refer to my professional um, timeline uh, or career as, you know, I've, I've had two first children, right, uh, because I am a product of divorce, right? So I had my first restaurant, The Little Owl, and had another restaurant with who was my then business partner. And then we split ways, and he kept the restaurants, and then I had a new first restaurant at some point when I opened Joseph Leonard. So I've had a first restaurant twice in my life. Um, I like that. I like thinking about it like that. That's an interesting, yeah. Yeah, it was like, you know, marriage one, marriage two. Um, 
So don't worry if you split up with your partners. There's always the second marriage. I like that. Well, I mean, you just... Don't get me wrong. There was some rough years. A rough year of, like, emotion. Um, but be that as it may, that's for a different podcast. That's a different podcast. That's a different <laughs> podcast to talk about emotional, <laughs> emotional perseverance. Right. Um, but uh, with the first one, I... I was riding my bike around. I used to live on Rivington Street, and we I was were neighbors just, and didn't know it exactly. Yeah. And and I was just pedaling. I used to have a hot pink uh, Diamondback BMX with white mags and white pegs, <laughs> nice. and I used to stunt this bike all over Lower Manhattan. And I was just literally just riding by. And I mean, you got to understand um, <laughs> when I got my first job in the city in '03. And when we hired our first staff at the Little Owl, um, there was no Craigslist. Uh, job postings were you paid for an ad in the back of Village Voice. Oh, and, people, wow. and, and people would go and get a free copy of the Village Voice from a box on the street and look in the back. And I would go and apply from bar to bar to bar. And you'd literally see the same people who were just following Village Voice around. That's and I'd be like competing against the same 10 people today who would just be applying at all the same restaurants. But were you faster on your bike than them? Is that all that mattered? No, I got rejected <laughs> from all of those restaurants. I might have been faster, but I never got hired. Um, and so I, what I was looking for, you know, also mind you, I was 25 when the little owl, when, when I built the little owl and I didn't know what a broker was or I'd, I'd never even managed anything. So my way of, if my way of finding a job was look at the back of ads in the village voice, like, like an SAT question, if this, then my way of finding a restaurant was ride my bike around and look for signs and window that said store for rent. Right. And I literally just rode my bike around and I saw a sign in the window of what is now the Little Owl that said store for rent. And it wasn't a restaurant at that time. It, it, it was a restaurant that had recently closed, uh, Chez Michelet. Uh, and, you know, I mean, this is Little Owl opened in 06, so we're talking 05. Um, and so I saw a sign that said store for rent. We called it. Fast forward, that became Little Owl, so on and so forth. Uh, then with my second first, I was living in the Lower East Side and I was going to meet a friend at Wilfie and Nell and taking, this is pre-Uber, taking a yellow cab in, you know, 2008 from Rivington. The path was basically, uh, take Houston make a right-hand turn onto 6th Avenue, right. swing up 6th Avenue, make a left onto Waverly. Then you do that little zip around mm-hmm. of where uh, there's like two Waverly's. Waver- um, Waverly. And then, and then you, make, you make the little right onto that little street, and then you make your left onto Christopher. And then you take Christopher over to 7th Avenue, and you do that funny right-hand turn towards West 4th Street. And that's how you get dropped off at Wilfie and Nell coming from Rivington. And as I'm doing that this night to go meet a friend, we hang that left onto Christopher. And I just had my head like, sorry, I got to keep the mic in front of me. I got my head like leaning on the glass window of the cab. It was wintertime. And we're driving by what is now Joseph Leonard. And it was just a lights out closed place. The sign said store for rent by owner. And I was just like, son of a bitch, I know that corner. And I jotted, I jotted down the number real quick. 
and called the next day and I went and set up a viewing and I will, I do remember somebody who will, who will remain nameless. Uh, I set up my viewing and the landlord who scheduled my viewing, um, unintentionally, I hope, double booked. Oh, really? And I was in the basement. I'd already, I mean, Joseph Leonard is all of 550 square feet. So I'd, I had quickly examined the ground floor and then I was in the basement and then I heard footsteps. <laughs> and I was like, Pull out your checkbook. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, this you... is the worst. And I walked up and it was a chef that I knew. Oh, no. And I was like, damn it. I knew I was in a bitty. Like, I knew I you was. Knew I, knew I, I knew I had a fight. I was like, son of a bitch. But so fortunate. did you get in a bidding war? I don't know. I won. You won, so <laughs> it doesn't matter now. I, I don't know what happened, but I know that I got it. And in the end. Before we go on, I, I want to hit the point. So that, store for rent by owner. Yeah. That's I want to hit the point that you mentioned that uh, it was a corner. And we talked about this earlier in lunch. How many of your restaurants are corner restaurants? Most of them. So uh, Joseph Leonard is a corner. Jeffrey's Grocery is a corner. Bar Sardine is a corner. Fairfax is a corner. Simon and the Whale is a corner. Technically studio, although on the second floor. It's <laughs> a, a corner. We have six fingers out, people. Yeah. And so then the six joints on corners. The new spot, Jones, you said Jones. is not, is mid-block. Jones is not. George Washington Bar is also a corner. Second floor corner. I do have windows on two sides. <laughs> I have two windows, so that's seven. Seven. GW Bar is also a corner. It's the opposite corner of studio. Um, do you have an obsession for corners? Or is there, I have an obsession for reason? corners. Um, my obsession for corners has to do with, I am I, riddled with insecurities. Um, <laughs> I, I am insecure in that um, we won't be able to fill seats. That's why I am more comfortable in smaller restaurants because I'm, I feel safer in filling fewer seats than a lot of seats. And I think I'm drawn and attracted to corner real estate because it means I can have people walking on two sides, which then increase my odds of filling my few seats. Right. And that, I mean, it usually raises the rent a little bit, right, for a corner, but... Generally. But the value is, is beyond well, the difference in cost. Right? Hopefully. Hopefully. You know. so, and I, so I do, I do want to talk about that for a minute, what you just said about you... Um, it's easier to fill the seats when you're a smaller restaurant versus a bigger one. Ho- hopefully. Hopefully. At big asterisk. Hopefully, hopefully. it's right. easier to fill the seats. Hopefully well, if you can't fill 30, you can't fill 100, uh, right? Right. So, so I guess true. has to be. But I haven't always <laughs> been able to fill 30. Which right. Is, right. Which is so. And a, a neighborhood restaurant is, would not probably be the same if it, are, if it is 25% capacity, right? Doesn't have, you can't get that vibe of like. Well, that's a great question. I've never really pondered that. My knee jerk. Now, having to respond on the fly, I'd say no. It can still be a neighborhood restaurant if there's only one table in the room. Really? Yes. It's about how you treat that one guest. You know, you go to your friend's house for breakfast and it's just you. It doesn't need to be a party. So I think neighborhood restaurant I defined by a feeling and, and a sensibility and a heart and soul. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not a one-to-one correlation to how full it is. I think you can have a tiny room that is slow at a certain hour and still feel 
like a magical neighborhood like you stumbled upon on a snowy day and you're the only person you're like this fucking restaurant is great this restaurant's great yeah it's cozy but so and one of the things that people have said you know on the show previously some of our other guests talk about the numbers of seats that you have and how that helps with the economics of the of the business and Restaurants are businesses, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So, you know, how, what do you say to people who are like, you can only make money on a big restaurant, like, you know, na- don't do small neighborhood restaurants with only 30 seats that feel wonderful and cozy? <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. There, that is a strong question. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, no. But I, 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 think, I am on the spot. I know. I, I, but I do. I'm with, like, I believe in the neighborhood restaurant, and I believe that these places should exist, especially in cities like New York, where you need an extension of the living room, and they play a really big place, and I want restaurateurs to open these places. Yeah, so I think the simple you... question for the, like, the young entrepreneur is, can you be profitable and make a living on a small restaurant I mean, without having nine of them, <laughs> starting with one? So, <laughs> y'all have raised an approach to this question in a few different ways. I'm going to take my best stab at trying to answer them, but I'm going to rewind for one second, which is I do think that you can still very much have a neighborhood. Uh, absolutely, quantifiably, you can have a neighborhood restaurant and it not be full. I don't think the volume of business that Joseph Leonard has in any given moment dictates whether it is or is not a neighborhood restaurant in that moment. It is always a neighborhood restaurant, and we have slow periods. Sure. The opposite, though, which I'm now pondering for the first time is, can you have a 200-seat restaurant be a neighborhood restaurant? And that, like, if I were to find my Yiddish, aha, <laughs> aha, I don't think so. I don't think a huge spot can be a neighborhood. No, restaurant. you have to have you have to have other. Would I you think call there a needs Commander's to be Palace some a neighborhood restaurant. No, what, which no? would you say? Alex and I met working at Commander's Palace in New Orleans, and he was like, "Would you call that a neighborhood restaurant?" Quantifiably, no. No, I love know. Commander's Palace, but I, I would not call it a neighborhood restaurant. I'd call Napoleon House okay. a neighborhood joint. Yeah, I would. Mm. I would agree with that. I mean, it's a tourist joint, but they both are. Yeah, but I mean, fair enough. <laughs> so. I think there's an intimacy that I do search for. Now to go to the more current question, which is uh, in one way that you ask the questions to try to consolidate them is can you make money on a small restaurant? Uh, or another way that it was phrased is like do you need to have a, a – w- would I tell somebody that they should not do a small restaurant or you know, what are the economics of a larger restaurant? And the asterisk on all of them is it depends how busy you are. Yeah. Right? Sure. You can have a big restaurant that does one turn. Excuse me. You can have a big restaurant that does one turn, and that may not be good, although it does more covers than the tiny restaurant that does three. Like if I have a 30-seat restaurant that does three turns, I've done 90 covers. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a 150-seat restaurant that does one turn. It's done 150. I would bet the tiny restaurant is more profitable. Would be my my gut instinct on that. Right. Um, so my answers are so that you can ask other questions that I'm sure you, you want to get to is, yes, absolutely, definitively, you can make money on a tiny restaurant. Of course you can. Otherwise, there would be no tiny restaurants. Right. right? Uh, you can. It's harder. It's harder because the margins are more razor thin. Right, uh, I, I'm 
I'm making decisions with an exacto knife. Like, I cannot swing a sledgehammer anywhere in my restaurant, metaphorically speaking, on decisions. Um, And so you can definitely make money in a tiny restaurant, but also there is a lower ceiling on how much you can make. Right, for sure. There's only so much I can, like, I, I can only turn a seat so many times, you know, the uh, number of people that are willing to eat at 6 p.m. or earlier or 10 p.m. or later is is narrow. Right. Right? So even if you get a few, most people want to eat between and most people spend two hours at a table. I do dinner. not. I'll go at 5.30 and I'll be out well, in half an hour. We have But that's kids. because <laughs> we've all discussed that we have children. <laughs> right, right. So, like I mean, I, I now request tables at 5.30. Same, 5.30, love and, it. And, and, and I'm like, <laughs> and if you guys open at 5, we're good with that too. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and we always have the caveat, we'll be in and out in 45 minutes. That's all the kids can oh, sit for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I absolutely inform them. I'm like, <laughs> I know it says you're booked yeah. But you I don't understand how thing. fast of a turn <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be. I know. Like, like, like yeah. you can definitely squeeze me in. <laughs> and I'll buy a bottle of wine, too. I know. My wife yeah. and I can put that down <laughs> in the same 40 minutes. Yeah. People with young kids, yeah. efficient. Take us. Take us into your restaurant. We are efficient <laughs> as No fuck. idea yeah. the economics of my checked average and turn time. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't lie. I'd like That's to so fill true. a restaurant with people like me. I know. Same. <laughs> or so true. I shouldn't say like me. I, let me rephrase it. I'd like to fill a restaurant with young families that eat well and dine and dash. I love it. Um, We talked, we were talking a little bit about how you feel like you don't need to have a ton of people, you don't need to have a full restaurant to have the... um, To have a feeling. To have the neighborhood feeling. will go out of business if you only have... (laughs) True, all the time. How does does the service, how does the service give a neighborhood vibe? How does the design, the menu, all those different components to running the business how do those how do you create something neighborhoody through those things Mm. or how have you done it good question it's better to answer how i've i don't know that i i I do not have a playbook that one should look at as any model one of the things you mentioned was having breakfast which i think not a lot of places have right so to me a neighborhood restaurant begins with this notion of accessibility right and I define accessibility through a few different channels. Accessible is um, how many different times of the day you can come, right? If you only serve dinner, then I am only accessible between 5, 30, and 10 or 11, right? But if I serve lunch, then I've just made myself more accessible. If I also serve breakfast, more accessible. If I also serve brunch, I'm even more accessible. If I stay open late night, even more accessible. If I don't close between lunch and dinner and stay open during that snack weird time, I'm even more accessible. So to me, accessibility is key to being a neighborhood restaurant. You need to make yourself accessible to neighborhood restaurant neighbors, right? Make yourself accessible to your neighbors. So if I'm always open, I'm more accessible. Another channel with which I define accessibility. Before you before you move on, is it tricky to staff an eighteen or nineteen hour restaurant? Of course, <laughs> absolutely. Any tips for young restaurateurs that are? No. no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Figure it out uh, yourself, boy. No, no, no. I mean, I, no, no. It's 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 not rocket science. It's uh, it, it, there, there's there, there, it's you the way that we do it. 
is we generally look at our restaurants as there are three shifts. There's an AM shift. Then there is what we call swing shift. And then there's the PM shift. And the AM shift is your dining room and kitchen teams that come and arrive at work before you open for business to get set up and open the doors. And they work for breakfast and lunch. So although we call it the AM crew, they do work until 3 or 4 o'clock, right? Sure. So, uh, but they work breakfast and lunch. And you stagger and schedule your breaks in there. So, yeah. you know, if you got two or three waiters and a bartender, you know, everybody gets their breaks at various times. And same goes for the kitchen. Um, you can't let everybody go on break at once. Otherwise, who's serving? Who's, who's cooking, break? right? Then we have what we call swing. And what swing is is uh, the first arrivals of the dinner crew. They come to work at like 3 o'clock. They arrive as lunch is ending, and they work that kind of uh, in-between period where uh, generally at our restaurants we offer food, but it's it's not the full lunch menu and it's not the full dinner menu, and it'll be an abbreviated menu of some dishes. And we generally, you need fewer people for that period because because we're not that busy. Sure. <laughs> right. Great. If we were packed at that point, then You'd I would more. have more people. Right. Um, and those people, they work that in-between period, and they work the beginning and middle of dinner. And like right when the rushes are over, they're the first ones to go home. Then the rest of your dinner crew comes later at like 4.30, and they are the ones that close, close. the restaurant. Yeah. And so... Do I have any tips? No, I think that's general 101 shit. Yeah. Right. You know, like, great, if you're going to be open for 18, 19 hours a day, you, you got to stagger it. You, right. know? You, yeah. you want people to generally work eight-hour days. We try to keep shifts to eight hours um, and slice it up. Yeah. You know, slice right. it up and have the most people when you're the busiest. Yeah. So back to the... Back to, I guess, like design and menu. Yeah. How, do the, how do those? Ah, uh, sure. So, that I mean, oh, so that gets back to other like parts of accessibility. I think accessibility also has a lot to do with price point, right? Sure. I think if you want to be a neighborhood restaurant, you need to have an accessible price point, right? So one, one way of defining accessibility is being open at all these different times so that I can be your breakfast restaurant on Monday. I can be your dinner by yourself at the bar on Wednesday. I can be your date night on Friday, and I can be your happy hour, bloody Mary Sunday afternoon at three o'clock with a, you know, friends or not. And we become more a part of the fabric of your life if you can use us whenever you want to use us. But then there's also this connected part, which is price point. I think you can have all those things, but if you're very expensive, then you are limiting the demographic that can afford to eat with you. If you design your menu, and so this gets into answering, I think, part of your question, we are hyper-conscious that our menu needs to always have uh, what we strive for is a, a range of price points uh, from high to low, right? You know, you should be able, if, you're, if you want to ball out, great, we've got some baller wines. And if you want a ball out, you can get the caviar and you can get the, you know, dry aged steak. And if you don't want a ball out, 
cool. We also have the Pollock. And we also have a salad. And I also have a $50 bottle of wine or a $12 glass of wine, you know. Uh, And so for us, it's really important that at every meal period, all of these menus have a wide range of price points. That allows you the that allows more people with varying economic places to afford us more of the time. And and then the last part of accessibility, and then I'll get to design. The last part of accessibility is whether or not you take reservations or don't. Do you guys hmm. take reservations? At some of the restaurants, we take reservations on some of the seats. And at some of the restaurants, we don't take any reservations. Mm-hmm. At none of the restaurants do we reserve the whole place. Right. So you and, never do a buyout. Well, that's different. That's, yeah. Yes, we do buyouts well, at do all You do buyouts, but you don't do... But, like, but if you're doing a buyout, then it's not available to anybody. Right. That right. night. Um, so I think it, if you take reservations on all of your tables and you are popular then you become inaccessible right. to your neighbor. The person who lives across the street or upstairs isn't going to make a reservation four weeks in advance. Right. If you don't take any reservations, so so the more pop, if you take reservations and you're very popular, you become less accessible to your neighbors, therefore working against being a neighborhood restaurant. Right. Right. If you're very successful and you don't take any reservations, you are less likely to be accessible to people who do not oh, live in your right, neighborhood. Because they're not going to come Because down. they're not going to risk coming from a 30-minute commute to be told it's a two-hour wait. Right. right. And so there's this razor-thin tight wire yeah. that, wa- that we walk of, I want to make sure that I'm accessible to people that don't live nearby, and I want to be accessible to people that do live by. And there, therein lies, and take reservations on some and not all. Yeah. And ultimately, you're business owners, so you want every seat full all the time. All the time, right. <laughs> Now, the design question. That's a super subjective point of view to each person who goes there. What my goals have been, and I design all my restaurants with my more than talented wife, Gina, and we, we aim for comfort and warmth. And I try to build places that you want to sink into but that's hyper subjective that I want to sink into right. like this appeals to me now and my tastes of interior design have evolved as I've grown right like I look at Joseph Leonard and Joseph Leonard is and Jeffrey's Grocery I was very much in like a vintage Americana vibe right Fairfax is totally not that at all yeah Simon and the Whale is not even close to that at all. Like, and the Jones is not anywhere near that at all. Like, they're all, and Fedora's its own, like, steakhouse supper club thing. Right. Right? Um, and so, each time I've, I've thought about, I want to make a room that you want to be in and you want to hang out in. And I think if you achieve that to enough people then you can be a neighborhood restaurant to those people. Like, I've, I've learned, you know, I, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's a Bob Marley song, right? You know, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it and, and butcher it, but, like, you can, um, you, can, you can be 
every like everything to some of the people, uh, but you can't you can't be everything to all the people. Right, you can't be right. everything to all the people, but you can all be, the time. Right, like I can be everything to some of the people all the time. I can be all the things to some of the people some of the time. Like I cannot be everything to everyone all the time. I cannot. I'm never gonna make all the neighbors happy, no matter how hard <laughs> we try. No. Um, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some more questions for Gabe. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, helping restaurants own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Joseph Zaro left his home in Eastern Europe and arrived in New York City in 1927, where he opened Zaro's family bakery in the Bronx. The bakery has grown immensely from its humble roots with nine locations, and it's been passed down through generations of sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons, and is a household name. Zara's Family Bakery is one of 5,000 restaurants that drives high margin revenue directly through their website thanks to Bento Box. Visit getbento.com slash opening soon today and get 50% off of your new website setup fee. All right, and we're back with Gabe um, from Happy Cooking Hospitality. And so... Most of Gabe's restaurants are in restaurants for, for those of you who are, most of his restaurants are in neighborhoods that are like freestanding for those of you who don't, don't know or don't live in New York. But Gabe does have three properties and the Freehand Hotel and Gramercy, um, which is obviously not a neighborhood, it's in a, a hotel. So tell us about how you created this neighborhood sensibility while being inside a hotel. So the first part of what you said is it's in Gramercy. But it's in a hotel, so it's not a neighborhood. And for us, Gramercy is a neighborhood. Hotel's in do, a neighborhood. Do, do, do. For us, <laughs> he's calling for, my bullshit. For yeah. us, we, we approached it as we're a part of a neighborhood, right? And actually, the reason why we were attracted to Freehand, as opposed to other hotel projects that we had been presented with, is the Freehand connected with us on a cultural level as a brand the freehand if you don't know is, is not your average hotel it's basically it's kind of super like a, bohemian a very yeah. it's like the double rl of hotels yeah. yeah right and they have like affordable rooms they mm-hmm. really and right. you know speaking accessible. of the neighborhood it's accessible it's mm-hmm. to us the freehand is like a version it's the hotel version of a neighborhood restaurant it's <laughs> a neighborhood hotel yeah and so it it resonated with us as a brand and our thought when we went into it was we want to build a neighborhood restaurant for a neighborhood hotel. And our objectives, and, and this, is, this is layered with the fact that we built more than one business in there simultaneously, with also having studio on the second floor. Our thoughts was the studio is going to be the restaurant for, for anybody who hasn't been in the freehand. It has 400 rooms. And so Studio is our restaurant on the second floor. And Studio was the restaurant that was, it's, it's a s- lower price point than Simon the Whale. It's a more Mediterranean menu than Simon the Whale. It's a more casual vibe. And it's more shareable, you know, Near Eastern, Israeli, Moroccan influences. And so Studio was meant to be the restaurant that is there for everybody staying in the hotel, the international. Simon the Whale 
we approached as what's a neighborhood restaurant for we're actually in this weird zone we're like on the border of Flatiron and Gramercy because if you go one block west is the Flatiron building right and then one block south is Gramercy Park right so when we pull up the maps we're 23rd Street's literally the fault line of are you in Flatiron or are you in Gramercy 23rd and Lex right um, and so we thought well we want to be a neighborhood restaurant for our neighborhood. And I think that we've achieved that. I can quantifiably say we've achieved that because less than 5% of the diners that we have at Simon the Whale are hotel guests. Wow. And we have the, the best way we're able to measure that is uh, what percentage of our guests do room charges. I was going to ask, how do you know? But that's obvious, right? So generally people that are staying in the hotel do a room charge. Now the percentage of room charges that we have on the second floor is substantially higher. Right? Mm. And so what we find the bulk of our our guests at Simon the Whale are people that live in the neighborhood. And so the way we approached it was the same way we approached any restaurant, which is like we want to build a great restaurant that is servicing this neighborhood. Like – you know, we felt that there were other restaurants nearby that we were competing with. Mylino being an example that's mm-hmm. nearby, and Upland and being an example yes, that's nearby. And we thought, great, those are two awesome restaurants, mm-hmm. and I'm fans of both of them. I think there's room for a third. Like, I just, there's enough residential in that area. That I, I, we believed that, you know, we met so many people that would come in the opening months and they were like, oh, we're so happy you're open. We go to Mialino and Upland all the time. It's good to have another place in the rotation. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So and we're like, brilliant. The more like, the merrier. I, yeah, yeah, like, keep going to Mialino once a right. week and keep going to Upland once a week. If I can get one. Right. That's right. That's all you need. That's all <laughs> you want. Sweet. Perfect. That's a good life. That is a good no? life. Yeah. My yeah. Alina. I, I'd, like that, I know. I, I'd like that rotation of uh, <laughs> my neighborhood restaurants. Should we go on a lightning round? Yeah, let's go on to the lightning round. Um, so these are meant to be, you know, some quicker off the top of your head. This is like therapy image like, association. Yes. This is like your Rorschach sure. test. Sure. <laughs> um, so tell, what's your favorite part about owning neighborhood restaurants? The people that I get to work with and like this, the building of a team. Um, I, I love the process. My favorite moment in any of our restaurants, it generally happens when they're several years old. It's when I walk in and I have done nothing to work on that restaurant that day and it's packed and I enter the room and there's not an empty seat and the room feels amazing and electric and the lighting is great and the music's great and there's a whole bunch of people laughing and talking and the staff is joking with each other and I see beautiful plates come out and I like to sit and lean on the wall and I see service mechanics happening in a way that make me happy like a table being bust efficiently with teamwork or the bell being rung and somebody quickly being at okay. the pass mm-hmm. and I just see everything humming like a like a Lamborghini and just 
it brings me so much joy when that day happens and I didn't touch the restaurant at all that day. It means you had some good training. It means that we've created a place that is bringing joy to its team and to its guests. Yeah. And they, and especially like if in that moment I look at the menu and I'm like, oh, there's like five dishes on here that I haven't tried yet. And there's two new cocktails that I haven't tried yet. Then they're creating on their own without me. And the process of getting there is not dissimilar from child rearing. Yeah. You know, and it's like, great, I'm going to sit with my son and, and, and go through math equations. And then eventually I'm going to come and he's going to show me his completed math homework. And I'm going to be like... Like you I did it, it. You got it right. <laughs> did it. Yes. Yeah. I love that picture you just painted. Um, what about the least favorite part? Um, maintenance. maintenance. Fucking hate. <laughs> Fucking hate maintenance. Like and and ma- it's 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 always like physical like, maintenance. Like yeah, oh, no, no, there's a light bulb out. Yeah. No, 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 no. The, <laughs> that, that's, that's, I know. The, I'm that's, joking. I'm talking. Of course. Every time there's a heat wave is when the air conditioning breaks. Oh, the air conditioning breaks, yeah. Of course, every time... every business owner, Of course, every time that there's a heat wave is when a compressor blows on the fridge. And you're just like, what the fuck? Why couldn't the compressor blow when it was two degrees (laughs) outside? (laughs) Why did it have to blow today, you know? Um, Why did the air conditioner not work on the hottest day of the year? That shit... But that's like a, that's like a Murphy's Law universal truth yeah, for I every know, single but you like question. I know I know right. but I'm just I'm like I'm commiserating with you because I feel like it's true for every business oh, owner. Oh um, God, it's my we've least. We've had our own HVAC issues. It's like it drives me yeah. mad, it's mad. Crazy. All right, guys, know? we're moving on from the HVAC. <laughs> Everybody, calm down. Uh, favorite neighborhood in New York City? West Village. West Village. Favorite neighborhood outside of New York City? Do. Other boroughs count, or do I'm going to leave the state? No, do I'm going to leave the state or other boroughs? Up to you. There's like a neighborhood in in LA that you thought was amazing, or yeah. All right, great, great. A few quick answers. Uh, I love uh, I love West Hollywood in LA. Like, there's just lots of good things happening there. John and Vinny's is dope ass restaurant, cool stores. Uh, Doctor Wu's tattoo studios there. Like, like West Hollywood. Game on. All right. Uh, Fort Green. I like Fort Green. That's a cool neighborhood. You know, Fort Green is like the West Village of Brooklyn. Fort Green's got some West Village vibes. You know, like Fort Green Park, Washington Square Park, bunch of brownstones, trees, neighborhood restaurants. I like Fort Green. Um, Does that mean there might be... Have you been riding the pink bike through uh, Fort Green? (laughs) We're starting rumors. The the pink bike, uh, I I have since retired. I have have much more of like a cruiser now. Um, And in Washington, D.C., I love Adams Morgan. Yeah, Adams Morgan's a great neighborhood, yeah. Cool. Um, We always like to ask about business things. Oh, and I love South Beach. Oh, fucking love South Beach. Do you? South Beach is the shit. (laughs) Love South Beach. I I go to Miami all the time. Which part of South Beach? You like South South Beach? Like proper South Beach. Okay. My wife's from Miami and uh, my wife, both my mother-in-law and father-in-law are Cuban, like straight, like Ramon and Vivian uh, with thick ass Cuban accents. Like they left Havana when Castro was a dick. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and they were teenagers. And like a lot of Cubans, they ended up in Miami. Right. And so my wife was born to Cuban parents in Miami. And South Beach is home to 
some of my favorite super old school Cuban restaurants like Puerto Sagua and Cafe Versailles. And then also one of my favorite restaurants outside of New York is Joe's Stone Crab. Yeah. Everybody you loves know, Which Joe's. is not Cuban, but no. it is South Beach. Neighborhood restaurant? Definitively not a neighborhood <laughs> restaurant. It's like, but I one of my favorite restaurants in New York, hands down, is Keen's. Oh, Keen's Wouldn't, Steakhouse, really? Yeah, love Keen's. Wouldn't call it a neighborhood restaurant. No. Right. But, but are there steakhouses that are neighborhood restaurants? Great question. I don't have the answer to that. I mean, it's all about how you define That's a neighborhood what, restaurant, right? right? Accessibility. Accessibility. Which and I the best say. steakhouses don't have very good accessibility. No. True. That's true. Sadly. Sadly. Good for them and their business models. <laughs> what about, um, so we like to get into some business questions. What about your favorite business book? Mm. Um, so there is an author named uh, Erica Anderson. She started a, I, I don't know if it's like business coaching organization. She has a company called Proteus. Uh, and she's written a couple of novels. Um, one of them is called being strategic. Um, and another one is called growing great employees. Uh, they're both really awesome reads and I would recommend Erica Anderson's books, anything that she's written. I think she's written four books. Those are the only two that I've dove into. Um, cool. Those are good tips. Cool. Uh, last one, mentor or inspirational leader in the industry. Okay, so that's a tricky question for me because I haven't really had any many, if any, mentors due to the fact that I went from age 24 into construction. I, I went from being a bartender to building my first restaurant. And so I, I, didn't, I didn't actually have a, a lot of mentors. Um, I had a bunch of people that I worked for that I learned things from. I don't think of them as mentors. That being said, I'll put some asterisks on it. Um, there's a guy who is Danny Myers number two and has been for over 20 plus years. He's like the conciliary of all conciliaries. He's the fucking Don. <laughs> His name's Richard Corrine. And he is a boss of bosses. We gotta get him on the show. And he is just a quiet killer. Like, he's... Not enough people know who Richard Corain is. You need Richard, a killer on the show. Not enough people know who Richard Corain is, and Richard Corain has been running shit at USHG for over two decades. And for whatever reason, uh, we were on a panel together seven years ago, and we connected after that panel, and he took a kindness to me, and we began to spend a bunch of time together and he was a really transparent and open person that as we were going through growth as a company, I could ask questions and ask him how he handled certain situations and he was just so open and sharing with me and I found his experience and I wouldn't call it guidance because he wasn't telling me what to do. He was just sharing, here's what we learned. Here's how we did it this way and then we evolved and did it this way and then we evolved again and did it that way and he would just basically explain here's what we are doing and here's what we were doing and here's what we did in between 
and he would just basically like vomit knowledge <laughs> all the time. And I just felt like when I was with him, I wanted to record the conversation, but I wanted to be cooler than to record it. So I would just have a <laughs> I would just have a notepad. You're furiously I would just, writing. Oh my it down. god! I was just I was like Slow down, on please. fire. <laughs> I was like, say that again. Yeah. yeah just, no, wait on the. Three sides make a yes. I got you. Um, and then inspiration, um, Will Gadara. Will Gadara is that guy's. Fuck him. He's just, in a good way. Yeah, in a fucking best way, and like a like in a LeBron James way. Like I fuck LeBron it. James. He's just so fucking good. Yeah. Like Will Gutierrez is just so amazing. I think you're saying Will's the LeBron of hospitality. I love I it. am saying Will is the LeBron of hospitality. I love it. Will is just he. You know what they both do? They do the amazing and make it look effortless. Yeah. They they both create magics on their respective courts. Yeah, I would. and it's like a joy to watch them perform. Like I watch that guy, and I'm just like, "Motherfucker, do you do you make everybody happy that you come in contact with?" <laughs> I just, I just, I just think you I think you crop dusted that table and they said thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love it. That's hospitality. That's what we're here for, and make people happy. Not to crop dust. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Moving on from from all that to um, opening soon announcements. Any, yeah. Anybody that you know of that's opening a restaurant soon or cafe bar or just opened? Uh, um, do you have a restaurant that you just opened? I do have a restaurant that I just <laughs> opened. Right. Yes, I opened a restaurant two months ago. <laughs> it's in the old Great Jones Cafe spot on Great Jones Street between Bowery and Lafayette in NoHo, and. Uh, we took our name from an essay that Peter Meehan wrote. When the old Great Jones Cafe closed, Peter Meehan wrote like an obituary of sorts. And it, he was a regular at the old Great Jones Cafe, and he penned this wonderful article. And he said, you know, uh, I used to go to Great Jones Cafe all the time with my writer friends. We would always go to Great Jones Cafe. And, and, and he says, for anybody that was a regular, none of us ever called it Great Jones Cafe. He said, for us, it was simply the Jones. And then he talks, I became friends with the people that worked. And he's telling me, you know, and when I was hanging out with this person outside of work and they said, I got to leave, I got to go to the Jones tonight. I'm working at the Jones tonight. I'll meet you at the Jones tonight. And he went on through this three-page essay and he kept referring to it as the Jones. And I thought it was this wonderful way for us to acknowledge the quote-unquote terroir Mm-hmm. of the space and the history behind us while making it our own. And so we're not, we're not a New Orleans or Cajun restaurant the way Great Jones Cafe was. Um, but we took our name from that essay, and so we're the Jones. And we've been open, and we hope to be a neighborhood joint. <laughs> well, it was uh, a, And it was a legacy ride, 35 years, the... Great Jones Cafe was there, and you guys kept the bright orange building. Which Hell yeah! I'm sure the old owner was a major New York Mets fan. Oh, that's which is, why. Which is why it's orange and blue. I love New Orleans love restaurant with a New York Mets color palette. I Massive love that. Mets fan. I love it. Um, the only shout outs we have. So actually, we launched something new. We launched a jumpsuit with Missy Robbins. So that's now swag. It's so cool. It's on nice. our website. So that just came out. So that's our Tillet opening soon. Hell yeah! Um, yes. Yeah, so it's. Officially available after a year in the making. Is it, is it uh, 
men's and women's, men's and any women, gender? Any gender. We have a men's cut and a women's cut, okay. but accessibility. You know, accessibility. Yes, we try to. I need to get my mechanic fit on. You need to get yeah. one. They're super cool. We're going to do an indigo dyed one. Yeah, it's pretty sick. Um, and then also our friends at the Banty Rooster are opening in your neighborhood in the West Village on Greenwich and 10th, um, which we're excited for. And Lamasan, which has been open for a little while, has gotten their three-star review today. So that was pretty exciting to see what? too. Yes. In the Times? Yes. Boss. I know. So congratulations to that team. Yeah. Um, all right. Big, Big moves. One. Three stars. Way yeah, to go. Huge. Thanks, Gabriel, for being here. Super, super excited to have the conversation. Uh, we'll put a wrap-up of our show on tilletnyc.com. It'll be on the blog. If uh, you're on our email list, you'll get it there as well. If you're not, then you should be. Um, if you enjoyed the show today, then tune in next week. We are talking with uh, Gavin Kaysen, and we're talking about moving markets and understanding your market. Um, Gabriel, you have a lot of restaurants, so I'm not going to make <laughs> you name all of the Instagram handles, but... Give us one or two, maybe the Jones, or, or how do we find you guys if we want to follow you? If you want to follow us, go to at the Jones NYC. Cool. Uh, and we are at, we are opening soon, and then at Till at NYC, so make sure you follow us as well. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Thank sir. you. Have an awesome day. Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.